Welcome to Arts Alive, focusing on the working artists of California's Central Coast. I'm your host, Brian Asher Alhadif. Joining us in the studio today is Paul Woodring, pianist, organist, and composer. He's on the faculty at Cal Poly as a piano and organ teacher, accompanist, and music coach. He also works for local churches as organist and choral director. Paul, tell us about your journey here in the Central Coast. How long have you lived here? Well, Brian, I moved to Los Osos in 1993. Um, I didn't really start working in music for about a year. I tried to get a publishing company going, and I had a lot of work to do on my house. But uh, the publishing thing didn't go where I thought it was going to go, and it left me some opportunities to start investigating the mu musical life here. And I started uh, off with a church job and worked from there. So 26 years I've been here. 27 if you count the last little bit of 1993. And you, what was that first church job? That was Mount Carmel Lutheran Church, where I still am after wow. 26 years. That's great. And yeah. since then, you've really sort of blossomed, as any fantastic pianist would in this sort of environment here. But uh, I, I really find that interesting. You moved here thinking you were going to start a publishing job, and now look at the the breadth of ex, uh, of where of how of your reach here on the Central Coast. You're the Music director, essentially, right, for Mount Carmel Lutheran Church? Mm -hmm. And then uh, what else are you are, are you engaged in? Well, I've worked for about five churches in the area. Um, the two uh, churches that I'm working for now are still Mount Carmel Lutheran Church up by Cal Poly and um, SLOUMC, the Methodist Church, which is the new newish church built on up on the hill, uh, also near Cal Poly. I've been there for 16 years. Um, in addition, uh, one of my first um, s steady accompanying jobs was with Cuesta College, and I worked for them for about 10 years, I think, and I dovetailed that in with my work at Cal Poly, where I'm the staff accompanist. So I was working for both colleges for a while. That was just too much. And I started working for Cal Poly exclusively about uh, 16 years ago. That's wonderful. And now around that, there are a number of different opportunities that sort of come into season uh, oh, sure. every year. And, and can you maybe describe some of those other jobs that, because uh, it's great to know as a, as a professional pianist where your mainstay is. You know, you work for some universities, you work for churches, but what happens throughout your life that keeps things interesting uh, with regards to sort of seasonal opportunities? Well, a, a performer, um, a musician, a performing musician, is really uh, blessed if they have kind of a, a central job that keeps things going no matter what, and that's the way I think of Cal Poly. Uh, it's uh, pretty much at the center of what I do, uh, but there's a lot of things that, that uh, kind of swarm around the Cal Poly work, the church uh, jobs, of course, but there's a lot of freelance playing with uh, orchestras. I've played with, um, I think, all the groups you've conducted, um, and also San Luis Symphony, and I've played with uh, Santa Maria, and I have played with Longfolk. You mean the, the Santa Maria Philharmonic? Santa Maria Philharmonic. Um, in addition, there's been a lot of solo recitals, um, a lot of chamber music, a lot of performances for arts organizations, um, uh, the sorts of things that pianists pianists do kind of on the side. We're, we're uh, often thought of as collaborative or supportive musicians, and 
Um, so there's always a lot of opportunity for work. That's great. And, you know, as I'm hearing you talk about these different uh, uh, kinds of music, we've got religious music, we've got secular music, we've got collaborative music. That's, a, that's like just a tremendous amount of repertoire to juggle. Can you tell us a little bit about, with all of this music, uh, how, do you, how do you improve the quality of your creative work? When do you know that it's, it's ready to share with the public? Oh, do I really have to improve the quality of my work? <laughs> Brian, I thought. Well, you know, we're we're all just we're always con- you know working against our our own inner selves, and and it's never right. And you know, I'm I'm always asking myself that when is it right? When is right. it ready to take the curtain well, off? Well, we're always well we're, we're always our worst critics and our our most uh, untiring critics, but it does have to get out there and and you know become usable. So the, I mean, I think the answer is probably pretty much what a lot of people would say there's a lot of practice um, a lot of alone uh, downtime when we get to if we talk about like how we're dealing with things during the pandemic that's an issue that comes into play there but um, just this really last week I was um, trying to put together a program for um, a video I'm going to be producing fairly soon and the issue wasn't uh, do I have enough stuff to work with. The issue is always there's just way too much material. Uh, how do I cut it down? How do I choose the few things that really speak to me at the moment and I think will work for an audience? But, uh, you know, preparation, a lot of time spent at the keyboard or in your office or researching, reading, listening, all those things are key to to getting what it is you have to uh, put out there in good shape. Uh, before we started recording, we, we were just sort of free chatting about uh, repertoire and how you're working on some interesting projects right now and that sort of uh, uh, so much of your music is not really if I'm interpret- interpreting this correctly so much of your decision making with repertoire isn't really up to you a church a pastor tells you this is what we're doing this week a student tells you I need you to accompany me on this when you do have some opportunity to develop your own Paul's imprint on music. How do you select your repertoire? What what it, what magnetizes you to uh, to music? And when it's just Paul alone, what is on the menu? Well, first I'll skip over the part about pastors telling me what music I'm going to play. <laughs> uh, I don't tell them what sermons to preach, and uh, they don't tell me what music to play. But um, uh, in terms of how to select repertoire, it's really one of my kind of favorite things to talk about because it depends so much on your audience, who your target audience is. Um, Since one of the main things that I do is as a pipe organ recitalist, uh, it makes the most sense to talk about that, Um, you're going to be playing for um, really vastly different audiences depending on whether or not it's a general public uh, performance at the PAC or it's in church on a Sunday morning, which is still a performance, or it's for an American Guild of Organist convention, let's say, or a scholarly meeting, or a um, Tuesday afternoon get-together lunch recital. Um, So you start with trying to figure out what your audience is there for and what they want to get out of it. Um, and that might steer you towards a heavier program or a lighter program, something with some really familiar selections on it. Or if you were playing for um, a group of fellow organists um, who are a little bit more in the inner circle, you might uh, go into more adventurous repertoire that's rarely heard uh, but would be of interest to a, 
to a group of fellow musicians. So if we were to maybe turn the spotlight on to Paul, the uh, resident Forbes organ artist at the PAC, what do you know about your audience that come to see you, to come experience you as the the featured, uh, uh, as, an, as, an, as a solo organist at uh, Harold Miosi Hall in San Luis Obispo with that glorious organ? Yeah, the organ is glorious. Um, I've had a chance to get to know the audiences uh, a little bit over the years. We have an organ recital series there and bring in incredible performers from around the world. Uh, it constantly amazes me that, that I'm actually in that same roster as some of these people. Um, so, really you're, so your job day. in that position, you're not only a soloist, but you're also a, a programmer. You program uh, guest artists, correct? No, I, no, they bring their own programs. Oh, oh okay. Uh, the, other, the other main aspect of my job with that organ is t- actually taking care of the instrument itself. I was just in there last night. Uh, with the with the pandemic, there's not a lot going on there, and so it gives me time to tighten up uh, nuts and bolts and uh, wiggle loose circuit boards and things like that, keep it in good shape. Um, but uh, the the aspect of uh, programming for uh, an audience is a is an important one, and you want to make sure that you're keeping your audience engaged and, and not losing them along the way. And one of the nice things about the community that we live in is that it is uh, a small uh, a small community, so you have the opportunity to really get to know your patrons and, yes. and, and have uh, meaningful relationships inside and outside of the concert hall. And, Absolutely. And that they tell you, you know, I like this, I like that, and... And I don't know if you're like me in this area, but we're people pleasers. We've got that awful character defect of, of of having to please people no matter what. Well, it's it's <laughs> it's enjoyable to to please people. It's it's what's what we do as performing artists. We're there to I mean to educate and inspire, but also to make people happy. And uh, performers who ignore that do so at their own peril, especially in a small community, and especially in a kind of a specialist area like uh, solo organ music, where your audience is small to start with. So you want to make sure you're always being an ambassador for the organ and for that, that repertoire and building it up and not doing things which are going to turn people away at all. Right, right. Now, you touched a little bit about how uh, this particular time that we're in right now, COVID-19, uh, quarantine uh, that are going across the nation. Uh, how has that affected your uh, your productivity? How have, have you had to evolve? What kind of things have you had? Has has COVID nineteen brought out in you or locked back up? Well, it's it's uh, of course been a shock for for everyone, and I think I think that people who derive a, a big part of their life energy from collaborating with other artists are really trying to find ways to, to keep that fire burning and to keep the spirit alive. And it's difficult to do. Uh, the, the digital platforms that are available to us are uh, represent a little bit of a wall uh, between performers. Most people report that experience. Um, so... I have not been doing so much collaborative online work with other people as I have been really putting my own house in order a lot. There was a good article in the National Organist magazine about what to do during this time to um, to keep yourself productive and and uh, and working hard. And it was most of the things that I'm doing. I'm digging out repertoire that I always wanted to learn but never really had the time. 
I'm going back to things and, and polishing them up. Um, and can I can I ask you, as long as you're there, what is a piece of repertoire that you're working on right now that you've just been dying to have the time to, to open up? Well, I'm working on a, on a set of um, pieces for organ and percussion that I'm hoping to do with John Astaire. Mm-hmm. Uh, by a Czech composer named Peter Aben. I'm working on some uh, some really uh, <laughs> starting to get a little bit into the weeds here, but <laughs> some working on some really uh, wonderful Belgian organ music that I've had my eye on for a long time. It's really good audience stuff and fun to play. That's great. Uh, just all sorts of things, and also the more kind of more mundane aspects of of any musician knows what it's like to just be drowning in sheet music. Uh, the, keeping it organized and uh, tidy is this has given me a chance to really go through my files and get everything cleaned up. I've been doing a lot of composing. Now, if we ta- oh wow, that's really exciting to hear too. Mostly, now, mostly church stuff, yeah. If we take you outside of music and think about the the effects of COVID nineteen, I mean, myself as an artist during this time, there's only so much music and art you can do given the limitations of of what's going on, and I find that 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 I have this internal river of energy that needs to 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 be creative in some way. Mm-hmm. And because of COVID-19, I can't get out there and, right. and really ex, ex, uh, 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 use that that fuel. So it's seeping in other non-art, non-musical ways. For example, I started putting together some woodwork. You know, you saw the Noah's Ark that I built for, I mean, the, the barn that I built for, for Ava, and these have nothing to do with my life as a conductor. What kind of things, do you, do you see your artistic, your creative fuel seeping into other areas that you're aware of? I um yes uh to a to a degree my the work that I do in music is really for me very all encompassing so if I can't find a situation to practice and perform with other musicians then I'm reading a lot mm-hmm. I'm studying I'm doing research um my day is still at least 8 hours a day of music um, some of that is practicing, some of it's composing, some of it is, um, I would consider what we're doing here today to be part of that. Um, I'm no gardener, and you don't have to be on my property for very long to find that <laughs> out. I'm cooking and eating more than I think I usually do, but I think most people could say that. Um, I'm just spending a lot of time kind of in the uh, sort of in the back chapters of of my musical life, uh, kind of bolstering things up, learning more, um, polishing some things, exploring some some avenues that I haven't really had a chance to do. Plus, of course, I am looking at um, the the quarter starting at Cal Poly. There's going to be a lot of music, even though it's virtual. There is still going to be a, a huge amount to do. So I'm starting to get ready for that. Oh, that's great. And, you know, as, as as we talk about sort of the effects of COVID-19 and, and being in isolation as mm-hmm. as two people who are uh, so used to being in very vibrant social situations, how has how, how much how much does your d- does your life revolve around connecting with society, culture and historical context? And, and what is that? What is that like? How, how is that? How's that feeling sort of taken a, a turn? And and are there some emotional uh, 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 consequences to that? Well, I think you've kind of answered your own question. Um, it has taken a, a turn for everybody. Um, the a musician's, a performing musician's life is is uh, a very social one. Uh, there's a lot of working together. There's a lot of making music together. A lot of hugs and handshaking yes. and 
and breathing in uh, horn players' air. And, and uh, spitting, yeah. releasing spit valves on the ground, right? <laughs> it's really kind of, uh, kind of disgusting when you think about it. Um, but, uh, yeah, there's, uh, there's a lot of community involvement. And I really um, I find that, that difficult to do without, but I'm philosophical about it. I know that um, we will eventually see the... Uh, the return of our rehearsing and performing, and I want to be in good shape for that. I don't want to be rusty. I don't want to be um, to find myself uh, having kind of misused the time that that has been given to me to to keep some things sharp. But definitely the the communal aspects of music making that that I'm missing now. I'm feeling that very very strongly. Yeah. I can barely watch. Uh, videos or hear performances of things that I've been involved in because it's emotionally uh, hard to see those and and realize that, you know, for the, I don't know uh, how long uh, in the future we have, we won't be able to do those things. It's, It's kind of tough. Yeah, no, those are those are really uh, difficult and I think accurate observations, and I, I certainly relate to a lot of that. And uh, but I, I I tend to remain hopeful. I believe in my heart we are going to come out of this. We're going to come out of this stronger. And I'm sort of always asking myself, what's it going to be like? You ever yes. ask yourself that question? What's yes. that first Beethoven's Fifth going to be like after COVID nineteen? What's that first La Boheme? And and how are we going to be? different as a as a as a culture are we going to be different or is it just going to be back to business well i don't know i mean we'll we'll uh, check in with each other about a year after things have have gotten back to to what i guess we'll be able to call normal and and see where we are i i don't know what it's going to feel like for me to be sitting in a seat at the pac and hearing our local symphony play a beethoven symphony for the first time live it could be overwhelming. Um, it's just going to have been so long, uh, and I crave those experiences so much. So I'm. I think it's going to be a huge rush of emotion. I'm really uh, looking forward to it, but almost scared of it at the same time. I've I've sort of been wondering, you know, what what are what are we going to be like as a as a culture that has been forced into isolation to suddenly have the gates opened and even if they're l- slowly opened you know but if, how, what are we going to be like when we slowly become performers again what are our challenges going to be having not worked with people one on one in so long are we just going to snap right back into it has the inner well, inertia I, I don't think we'll snap right back into it and one of the challenges will be of course audiences um, we may feel that I mean, we may be able to put a group together on stage to perform, and it may be we may be told that it's uh, for whatever uh, medical reason that it's okay to to gather and to hear performances again. But I think audiences are going to come back to that fairly slowly. Um, the gates may open wide, but I don't know how many people are going to going to walk through them right away. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we may find ourselves having to adapt to uh, a new way of of doing things and perceiving things, I'm hoping very strongly that the the kind of video orientation of everything now, right down to the uh, the Democratic National Convention, um, is not going to permanently influence our lives too much. I mean, I I think people really need communal experiences. They need to be together, whether it's a barbecue or a string quartet concert or an opera. Um, and there is no replacement for sharing the same air and being in the same room. Uh, it's 
there's certain things uh, about doing doing things virtually that are wonderful and that I want to graft into my daily life, but that doesn't extend as far as performances and performing, being with audiences and being with fellow musicians. I know we're very, very eager for that to return, and mm -hmm. I'm just hoping audiences, uh, when we're able to, will feel comfortable with that. I totally agree with you, and I think that we are... Uh we're learning as we as we go go through this difficult time, and certainly for the for our the younger generation, watching all of this unfold in front of them, one of the most important things that we can do is just keep getting on, keep on going, uh, show that evolution, show that the human spirit behind creativity is not something that you can put a plug into, and we will come out of this. And to that uh, aim, it's. We, we, I'd like to invite your words of encouragement because uh, part of the purpose of this podcast is to encourage people who look up to you and look up, look to careers in your profession. What would you say? What words of encouragement do you have to young pianists, composers, organists that are looking for a full life in collaborative musicianship? Well, if there are any young organists out there, more power to you and keep on practicing. The world needs you. Um, the, we will always have performing arts. Um, it's, uh, I think, a human necessity. Um, we will find ourselves back in a time when performing arts are um, running vibrantly again. And um, I don't think there's any reason to be too discouraged about the future uh, post-pandemic of performing arts. Um, if, if a young musician or dancer or uh, other performing artist feels that, that call that, that every performer feels or they really don't go into that, that um, area of life pursuit, if you feel that call, you have to act on it. And there will be many opportunities to uh, to make use of your talent and that call. And the, the door is only temporarily shut. It will be opening again. So I would just say to, uh, to anybody, especially if they're kind of at a crossroads in their lives, maybe they're between high school and college or trying to figure out what they, they want to, to do in college, to, um, to not allow the current situation to deviate you from your course if you feel the internal uh, passion for for artistic expression. If there is there is no substitute for that. If you, as you know, Brian, if you have that inside of you, it has to have, find a way to get out. Whether that is a professional career or an avocation, something that you do in addition to uh, uh, to something else, it it has to find a way to get out and uh, work on your skills. Use the time that you have at home to to do more research, to get more background, to practice, um, to hone your skills and refine your chops. People are still doing auditions, even though they're virtual. You can get your name out there. You can get your uh, CV or resume together. There's lots to do. There is so much available to us online. Master classes, in particular on YouTube, are a fantastic source of uh, inspiration and really usable material for burgeoning performers. Um, I almost hesitate to suggest, you know, spending more time in front of a screen, but it is such a valuable resource that I tap into all the time. So those are just a few ideas. 
Uh, Paul, one of the avenues that a collaborative pianist is often engaged in is the audition. And I wonder if you, maybe you can talk a little bit about that, your history as, a, as an audition accompanist. Uh, have there been some amazing artists that you've had the opportunity to accompany? Have there been maybe some anonymous diva stories you have to tell on us and tell us about? And in general, are there some do's and don'ts that musicians need to know about that relationship that maybe you see challenges that uh, happen fairly common? Sure, Brian. Well, the um, the accompanist's job often in terms of playing for auditions really runs a huge um, gamut. Um, for instance, at Cal Poly, we audition every student for every choir every year. And so I will be playing f uh, really whatever a student brings in. It could be songs from Frozen. It could be the Star Spangled Banner. It could be anything. Um, so there's a certain, you know, be prepared for whatever kind of attitude with that, that which is, is fun and frightening at the same time. You really never know what someone's going to put down on the music rack. When you're doing, for example, an open chorus call, what's the worst thing that could happen? Um, the worst thing that could happen for me is one person after another bringing me lead sheets. For, for people who don't know what lead sheets are, you have a melody and you have some chord symbols. If you know the song really well, you can fake it. If you've never heard, you have absolutely no guidance to go on. So in generally, in general, um, audition mm, uh, protocols that people may, may read before they come in audition might say no lead sheets in all caps, uh, unless you've got a, a pianist for whom that's kind of a specialty, then that wouldn't be a problem. But that's like one of my nightmare scenarios is just is dealing with nothing but lead sheets. Um, so one, one tip would definitely be when you go to audition, make sure that you absolutely are aware of the protocol for that specific audition. Yes, and they do change uh, depending on what they're looking for and who their staff is that they have to work with. They'll almost always supply some guidelines which will say th things like um, no lead sheets, no asking for on-the-spot on, on transpositions, playing a piece in a different key than, than what it's written in. Um, what about when, when, when you're working with a singer and they start to say, can you do it like this? Yeah. And they the, snap their finger the, at you. I was wondering that, if I should is, mention is that. The, the one <laughs> thing, and I actually uh, uh, know someone who uh, left an audition because he, he felt uh, so uh, so insulted by that. But, but <laughs> snapping in an accompanist's face to show them the tempo is like the number one worst thing you can do. <laughs> Now, on the other end of that, what about some some like moments? Have, can, do you have any like just amazing audition stories? Like, what's a great experience audition-wise? Well, it's not an audition story, but sometimes people who do what I do get called in on an emergency basis uh, for when maybe a company pianist is ill. And I had the chance to work with the Mormon Tabernacle Choir uh, when they were in L.A., um, gosh, now 20 eight years ago or so. That was an amazing experience and a tremendous amount of fun. Um, I worked with uh, touring opera companies whose accompanists have fallen ill, and those have been uh, just astonishing stories. Um, I don't really have any <laughs> diva stories, uh, none that I would I would think I would want to relate. Well, you know, one, th one thing that was sort of interesting when you were talking about the uh, sort of the bad habits uh, that can happen in, a, in an audition, it started making me think, when, when uh, young people, when anybody goes in for an audition, they're usually very nervous. Yes. And, and being nervous doesn't always bring out the best no, especially uh, protocol. Especially for a singer. Yeah. And so sometimes, I would imagine as a, as a veteran audition uh, accompanist, you're aware of that, uh, that, that 
people are not at their best communicative uh, uh, cordialness, and and so uh, some you have to keep that in mind, right? You have yeah. to sort of. Me- it's it's great if you have a little bit of ability to to kind of soothe people's nerves or calm them down. In a lot of audition situations, uh, when it's a large number of auditions for say one role or something, people walk onto the stage. You've never met them. They hand you the music. You have no time to talk, but you can at least you know give a nice smile, be encouraging, uh, say some nice words. Try to put them at their ease as best you can. Um, you always ask how fast they're wanting the song to go. That's when you don't snap, uh, <laughs> but you might you might count the numbers off, and then you always factor in like 10% slower because the adrenaline that they're feeling is going to make them push the tempo. So if they tell you it's one speed, you just subtract a few beats from that, and it should be about right. And uh, one last thing about auditions, which I think all potential auditionees uh, should remember is we do talk to you. The judges do talk yes. to the, the, the accompanist and mm-hmm. we want to know what was it like to accompany that person? How were there? How, how do they relate to you artistically? Sure. Did you feel as though this is a good fit? Because oftentimes uh, you are not called in an emergency situation and you have an innate relationship to the company that you're uh, providing the service for. Mm-hmm. Yes. So I think that's uh, uh, right. So there. so when I work uh, with you, uh, Brian, I know kind of what you're after for uh, for talent and what you're looking for. And if I kind of feel that vibe happen, I I always tell you. Well, thank you so much, Paul. I really appreciate your time coming in, and we look forward to seeing you back in a live concert hall as soon as possible. Thank you very much, Maestro Brian. It's been fun. If you found this content insightful, please subscribe and review on your preferred podcast platform. Funded by the Arts Collaborative, this podcast was produced on-site at the studios of the San Luis Obispo County Office of Education. For more information, visit us at www.slocoarch.org. That's S-L-O-C-O-E-A-R-T-S dot org.